Well, Merry Christmas. Let me ask you, what do you love about Christmas? I know what you don't like, right? We all know what we don't like, right? You don't love the pressure you feel to get everybody the right gift, right? Do you ever feel that? Or are you married to, or are you, are you friends with, or are you dating the person who buys the gifts for himself or herself the week of Christmas? I am that person oftentimes, right? I'll come home, I got this. She's like, I was gonna get it to you for Christmas. My wife will say, I say, you don't have to anymore, you know? <laughs> well, now I don't have anything to get you, right? So there's that, and then some of you, it's like, the, I know we all like, or most of us like the parties and the events, but it's very busy, right? So that's another thing, it's like, you know, and we, and we love, kind of what we love is watching Christmas through our kids' eyes, but we don't love watching Polar Express for the hundredth time, okay? <laughs> Say amen, right? Um, you love, some of you, you love the, um, you love the Starbucks, you know, drinks and the, and the holiday cups and the, and the ugly Christmas sweaters, right? It was interesting. At my last church, not here, um, we were in a community group and this community group was very multi-generational and there was this older lady in the group and it was the week before Christmas or two weeks before Christmas. We said, guys, hey, we're going to do a Christmas party and we're going to all wear ugly Christmas sweaters. And this lady, she was probably in her 60s, she looked up and she said, what's an ugly Christmas sweater? And she was wearing one. <laughs> True. True story. So I said, oh, just something silly that, you know, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to do that, you know. Um, but there's so much to love about the holidays, right? Well, part of what we love is we love the anticipation, and rightly so. It's like, you know, I mean, how many different ways can we count down to Christmas, right? You learn this as a kid. It's like, well, there's, here's 12 pairs of socks, you know, it's like for 12 days. And, you know, and hey, we're going to do the advent calendar. We're going to do the Jesse tree. We're going to do 12 days of Christmas. We're going to do the advent calendar. And it's because if, if there's one word or you know, there's many words you could use, but if there's one word that you could use for Christmas, it would be anticipation. And we love to anticipate, right? Sometimes it's like anticipation is actually better than the thing sometimes. And actually Apple knows this, Apple, you know, who does the iPhone. And by the way, those of you who have Android, we're the church for anybody. We're not the church for everybody. No, we love you guys. But um, so listen, this is interesting. So Apple, and those of you who've ever bought, you know, a phone or whatever, um, when, when, you, when they give you that box, this is not an accident. Have you ever tried to open that box and you're like, it's like, it's like real slow, right? They've actually, they made the box like that. This is technically true to create anticipation. They actually know that, they, they know the amount of time that it takes for you to get excited about something before you see it. And they've actually created the, this is interesting, they created the iPhone box to do that. So we, we, love, we love to anticipate things, right? When you're, when you're a kid, you like, you like learn how to do this at Christmas. So for me and my brother, it was, we would build a fort. In, we had two separate rooms. I've got one sibling, just me and my brother. We would, we would, but on Christmas Eve, we'd come together, we'd build a fort. We'd be anticipating. We'd be anticipating, oh man, how late can we stay up? What's tomorrow going to be like? And well, the reason that we do that, and it's like, why do all these cultural things happen? And why do we do the things we do? We always forget why we do them. But the reason we do these things is, um, is because Around Christmas time, um, we are remembering that God's people have always anticipated. We've, that the, the, the whole Old Testament, uh, from Genesis to Malachi, is the anticipation of God's people. Is God going to send somebody? When is God going to send somebody? Who is God going to send? Who is going to be this miraculous son born? And so what I want us to do is, is something different tonight. We're going to look, or this morning, we're going to do something um, a little bit different. We're not going to do a classic Christmas Eve message, and I'm not against them. I've done them in the past, and I'll do them again. You know, Luke 1, Luke 2, Matthew 1, Matthew 2, you know, the kings and the wise men, and those are all great. Or, you know, a lot of times you'll hear Old Testament prophecy, you know, open up to Isaiah 9, and we read this passage, or open up to this, you know, um, prophecy, and all of those are very, very good. But this morning, we're going to do something different. I want you to turn to or type to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to finish up the story of Abraham, looking at maybe the most famous or infamous, depending on who you are, one of the most beloved stories uh, by Christians and God's people, but one of the most questioned and used as ammunition from skeptics and atheists and cynics. 
And it's going to be the story. Now tell me if this story sounds familiar. A son miraculously born who's then asked to be sacrificed. A son who we've been waiting for for a long time, who has all the promises of God, who's finally born and then is born only to be sacrificed. Well, it's like, well, by the way, if you're new, this is why we love the Bible, because the Bible's not, you know, many books, it's one book. Not many heroes, one hero. Not many messages, one message. And so I want us to pick up in this story of Abraham and Isaac. It's a very, very famous story. Let's look at verse 1. Just read the first three words with me. It says this, after these things. Well, let's catch everybody up here. What are after these things? Because, well, there's a lot of things that happen in, in Abraham's life. And, and that really covers 10 chapters and 25 years. But let me just sum it up for you guys. Um, Abraham had to live a life of sacrifice. And, and if you're going to be a faithful Christian, if I'm going to be a faithful Christian, we've got to do the same thing. And there's three types of sacrifice. And we're going to see them in, in Abraham's life. There's the sacrifice of your past. Abraham does it at the very beginning. Hey, leave your mom and dad and your home and your culture and what's comfortable and go. It's like, well, I'm old and that's all I've ever known. It's like, yeah, sacrifice it. It's called, the sacrifice, it's called sacrificing your past and leaving. Often, that's very often associated with a call on a person's life. You have to leave your old life. You have to leave your, leave your old relationships. But then the second thing that we see in Abraham's life is the sacrifice of his present. And that, that's what we've been reading, and if you've been with us, we've looked at that for six or eight weeks together. And that, you sacrifice your present because you wait, he's waiting for the son. He's waiting for a son. And therefore, he's living differently, he's making different financial decisions, he's believing God's promises, contrary to all evidence in his life. And so he sacrifices his present, but then this is where it gets really interesting. He's now going to be asked to sacrifice his future. His young, at this time we'll see, is probably teenage son. And this is really interesting. It's good to you know because, again, around Christmas time, we've, you know, we're thinking a lot about our family. And a good thing to know is, especially if you're ministering to somebody or you're, you care for somebody, is to know that when somebody loses their parent, what they lose is their past. I mean, that's, that's the way they think about it. That's the way you've thought about it if you lost your parent. And if you lose your spouse, you lose your present. And you grieve that. And you grieve that daily. And if you lose your kids, God forbid, it happens so, you lose your future. And so what we see in the, in the life of Abraham is, is God comes to him and, and the sacrifices that God is going to ask him are going to continue to increase in his life. And by the way, that's true of every Christian. And that's true for two reasons. One, well, you know, of course, as you grow and your relationship with God's deeper, he's going to, you know, you're going to kind of build up a tolerance in a good sense to sacrifice. And God's going to ask more of you for your own good and your own development. And then another reason is, well, if you're a fairly normal person who lives a fairly normal life, and not all of us will, but you will have more at the end of your life than you do at the beginning. And therefore, you have more to sacrifice the older you get. That makes sense. It's like, well, you know, you're 19. What do you have to sacrifice? Well, I'm sure something, but usually not a wife and not kids and not a mortgage and not a career and not a house and not a name and not an established you know, place and person in society. As you get older, you have to sacrifice all of that if you're going to make some big decisions. And so I want us to pick up this story because this is such a powerful story. So he comes to him, look, and it says this, after these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. So God comes to him and God tests him. Now, testing is not tempting, right? Tempting is, I'm trying to get you to do the wrong thing. That's tempting. That's what the devil does. That's what your own flesh, flesh, fleshly desires do. That's what the world's value system does. It tempts you to do the wrong thing. Testing is God taking you usually through a trial to, not so that God knows what's in you, because God knows what's in you. It's so that you know what's in you, right? That's why a faith that's tested is a faith that can be trusted. And so when God takes you through a test, it's always for your own good. Now, my question is, do you have a God? And I know we're, 
You know, all, all over the map, maybe in here on, on Christmas Eve services, but, you know, do you have a God that's involved and invested enough in your life that he actually can test you? It's like right, the, the God of the Bible is an intricately evolved, involved in our life God. And so, and actually what it means, by the way, for God to be loving is for him to test you. Because, and, and this is helpful to know, in our society, what it means, when people say, um, love me, or I don't feel loved, if they say I don't feel loved, here's what they mean. I, I don't feel like you're making me feel good. Because in our society, the word love means you will make me feel good. And you will do to me what feels good to me. And that's not a biblical idea of love. The biblical idea of love is um, if you love me, you will be committed to my good even if I don't like it. That's the definition of love. So it's really hard because it's like, well, then I may say things that you don't want to hear and that won't be good in the short term, but maybe in the long term it will. And I'll have to have the hard conversations and I'll have to, I'll have to do, do things in life that I'll have to allow consequences to take place and well, none of that's fun. And so what we see here is God, is God, it's really a form of disciplining. And disciplining is different than punishing. Sometimes people will say, and I get what they mean by this, but they'll say, yeah, our kid disobeyed and we punished him. I'm like, I know what you mean by that. A better word would be discipline, right? Punishment is no relationship. Punishment is what a judge does, what a lawyer can do, what a, what a law enforcement officer can do. No relationship necessary to punish. Discipline is deeper. It's care, it's coaching, and correction all, all together. It, it requires a relationship. And I know some of you, you go, some of you go, we don't discipline our kids. We know, we know that you don't know discipline your kids. We've been trying to talk to you guys about that, but we know that you don't discipline your kids. Because, you know, and we laugh because every parent who loves their kid, right, is gonna discipline their kid. Is gonna care for them, right? I knew a guy and he was telling a story. He said, he said that he and his, he was a young kid. He's probably eight or nine years old and he was riding his bike in the street with his friend and his mom comes out and his mom yells at him and says, get off the street, you're gonna hurt yourself. And he yells back, mom, you don't love me. That's what, you don't let me have any fun. You don't love me. She goes, if I loved you, if I didn't love you, I'd let you ride in the street. And he goes, okay. And, and, then, and then he turns around and his friend's crying. He goes, why are you crying? And he goes, my mom lets me ride in the street. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's, it's a great picture that God loves us so he tests us, so he disciplines us. And so you know, it's, not, it's not punishment. It, it's, something, it's something more relational, okay? And, and see, we live in a society that, and this is interesting because almost everything in our society is inverted from the biblical narrative. So in other words, we don't think God can test us, we think we can test God. Which is actually, we're told not to do. It's like, yeah, God, I'll test you. Yeah, I won't believe you. Yeah, I'll call you out on everything. Yeah, you'll have to prove yourself in every way. Yeah, I'll put you on trial. I mean, that's what our society does. Instead, Abraham, he responds, look at the end of verse one, he responds with these, this phrase shows up three times and anything, anytime something's you know, repeated, it's important. He, three different times he says, here I am. Which, this is a great question, especially to ask as you're heading into 2020. When God calls you to something else, when God calls you to, I don't know, be more generous, repent of that sin, uh, love your wife more consistently, I don't know, disciple your kids more intentionally, um, I don't know, work harder, whatever you feel like from God's word he's calling you to do, what is your normal response? Is it like, oh no. I hope God's not asking me to give more or do more or pray more or read more or sacrifice more. That's the opposite mindset of the Bible. The Bible's like, doesn't have the have to mindset, it has the get to mindset. And that, that's, that's a profound, I mean, I want to get there, I'm not there, but you know, it's the, I get to read my Bible, I get to pray, I get to repent, I get to be in a community group, I get to be generous, I get to sacrifice for the Lord, I get to be intentional in my relationships to share Christ, it's the I get to mindset. So, so that's what Abraham's called to, but then it gets very, very specific, and I want you to see what happens next. Verse two, God said, and it gets very specific here, take your son, 
your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now, this is the first time in the Bible the word love shows up. Isn't that interesting? The first time in the Bible the word love shows up, it's the love of a father for his son. A son whom he does not want to sacrifice, but is going to be called to sacrifice. That's going to be the paradigm-shaping definition for love for the rest of the Bible. He says this, your only son Isaac, whom you love. This is very similar, by the way, to his call in Genesis chapter 12. Oh, go to the land of Moriah and offer him up there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now let's talk about this for a while because it can be confusing. First thing I want us to see is God tells us what we should sacrifice. We don't get to choose. Right? Religion, in religion, which is different than Christianity, you choose what you're going to sacrifice. And normally you sacrifice it so God will love you. That's religion. God, I give this up to you in hopes that really it will manipulate you to do what I want. That's religion in a nutshell. Um, Christianity is God has made the sacrifice first. And we'll talk about that later. And therefore, I want to respond in love to him. And so God comes and he got, God chooses the sacrifice. And this is interesting. If you were to ask God right now in your heart, you know, and we've talked about this, this is hard to do. And if you do it, you'll know the answer and you won't like it. You know, but if you said, God, what do I need to sacrifice in my life? Something will come up to you and you'll know it's the Lord, it's from the Lord if it's, if it's what you don't want to do, right? It's like, well, here's what it will at least be. We know this, right? You need to, where, it's like, well, where do you start? Like if someone's a brand new Christian, they go, what do I start sacrificing? The worst part about you that you love. Right? It's like your dark friend. Your dark friend. That you know you hang out with on the weekends and when no one else is home. That dark part of you, okay? The things that you wish you didn't love, but you love. That's what you have, you have to start there. Now we're going to get, you know, he ends up calling Abraham to higher sacrifices, right? Now, Abraham, this is a mature sacrifice later, is I sacrifice that which is good and that which I love, but that which is holding me from the best. That's the highest form of sacrifice. I sacrifice the good for the sake of the best. But you have to at least start somewhere. You start with what you love. Maybe it's the worst parts of you that you love. So he comes to him and he says this. Now let me, let me say this too because people read this and, and rightly so, let's be honest. We, we don't want to avoid or ignore things. We want to go right at him. It, it's not that he's saying, he's not saying go and kill your son. Just go, go stab him and kill him. Go murder Isaac. Because if he was saying that, then Abraham would have just gone and done that right away. This is a, this is a deeper, worshipful, offering up of his son to the Lord by sacrifice, no doubt. But it's not go kill your son. It's, it's offer him up. And, and I know, again, we, we read these things and we go, you know, modern people, us in the 21st century, we go, oh, how silly people to sacrifice children. Isn't that such, who would, I mean, the God of Molech back then, they practiced child sacrifice. Weren't people so uh, primitive to practice child sacrifice? Well, we still as a society, as a nation, in 2019, we practice child sacrifice. It's called abortion. And about 20% of pregnancies end in abortion still. We still kill the unborn. It's not to Molech, it's to the God of sex, right? Because every God has to be sacrificed to. And so we, we do it physically, literally, technically, medically, clinically. But then we also do it metaphorically and symbolically, right? I mean, like, some of you, you know, you, some of you, you know people, right? It's like, well, I needed to fall in love with a woman half my age and leave my family, well, that's a very common story. And, that, and you, who sacrificed? Well, of course, the wife and especially the children. You know, it's, sometimes it's, it's, it's you know, not, 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 not that intense. More it's like, well, I'm just obsessed with myself and my hobbies and my travel and my life. I remember Tim Keller, he, he said, and he was a pastor in Manhattan. He said after 30 years of ministering in Manhattan, he was convinced there were certain jobs people could not take in New York City without practicing child sacrifice. He said he would just see that there were certain jobs on Wall Street to which you take that job and you're committing child sacrifice. 
It's like, well, you know, what would it mean? Well, it, means it just means that I'm working 80 hours every week. I'm traveling all the time. I have no mornings and no nights. I have to work over the holidays. I actually knew a guy, and I've, just like you guys have, I've met a lot of interesting people in my life, and I had a chance to meet a former high-level investment banker in New York City. And uh, actually, he was a, a Christian and a father of a Duke student when I was there. And I was sitting with him, and he doesn't do that anymore. He owns a company now and different things, but we were talking, I was talking to him, and I said, he was telling me, he said, yeah, one night, I was new to the job, I was an investment banker, it was late at night, and I'm, and I'm working with an older investment banker. And it's like midnight, and it's like on a Friday, and he said, and I'm talking to the guy, and I kind of looked up to this guy. And so I said to him, you know, how do you do this? How have you been doing this for 20 years? He goes, well, he said, you can do this and one more thing. And that's it with your life. You can do this job and one more thing. And he said, oh, so it's this in your family. He said, no, it's this in my kids. He said, I actually had to decide between, was I going to have a relationship with my wife or I was going to have a relationship with my kids? I didn't have time for both. And for this guy, I know that's, I'm not saying you can't be an investment banker and a Christian. I'm just saying for this guy, in that job at that time, that was, that was the beginning of the end. And he ended up transitioning and going into a different field because of that. But, but so you, you, we, we see this thing, and he's called to go up, and he's called to offer up his son on a mountain. And we see this deep love that he has for him. I want you to see here that it says, I'll read it one more time. It says here, take your only son whom you Love. See, at the heart of Christianity and at the heart of this story and at the heart of Christmas is the love of, the love of a father for the son. A, a lo- the love of a good father for the son he loves, which basically we've lost that picture in society. It's like, what movie does that happen in? What television show do you see that? It's like, what, here's what you normally see. If it's a sitcom, the dad's an idiot and the dog saves the day. That's every sitcom, pretty much. And, and then if it's the news, it's, it's it, you know, rightly so in a lot of ways, it's like, well, dad's a jerk and dad's abusive and dad left and um, there's a lot of truth of that uh, in society today. But you, you, we've, lost the, we've lost the picture of Abraham of like, no, there actually are good dads who invest in people and love them. Like, I don't know if you saw, on the other side of it, if you saw this week, there was a story that came out about a seven-year-old boy and his desire for a good dad. I don't know if you saw this. He wrote Santa a letter because his dad was abusive and his mom and him, they had to go to a shelter. I don't know if you saw this letter. I'll read this letter to you. He wrote this short letter to Santa. Here's what he says. Dear Santa, we had to leave our house. This is Blake. He's seven. Uh, Dad was mad. We had to do all the chores. Dad got everything he wanted. Mom said it was time to leave and she would take us to a safer place where we don't have to be scared. We don't have any of our stuff here. Can you bring some chapter books, a dictionary, a compass, and a watch? I also want a very, very, very good dad. Can you do that too? Love, Blake. What you see there is the desire for a good dad, a dad that would love. It's interesting, when they, when they ask people who haven't had dads, because it's like, well, what's a good dad? It's like, well, good luck with that. Good luck giving a real good definition of what a dad is. So what they actually do is they, they go to people who've never had a dad, and they said, what are you missing? And then they take the collection of all of the things people said they're missing, and they go, well, that might be what's, that's, that's the vacuum and void. That's what dad is. And they said it's four things. It's presence, it's praise, it's provision, and it's protection. You know, and a lot of us in this room are dads, or you want to be dads. It's like, well, that's a great way to think about your ne- next year. It's like, just grow in those areas by gr- the grace of God and repentance. I mean, I'd like to provide more spiritually and physically. I'd like to protect more spiritually and physically. I'd like to praise my sons and daughters more publicly. By the way, when, when God shows up at Jesus' baptism, what is he? He's there at a big event in his son's life and he's publicly praising him. He does the same thing at the transfiguration. And then I want to be public in praising my sons and my daughters. 
And, and by the way, if you haven't had a good dad, this is a, this is a helpful thing to know. If you haven't had a good dad, part of your healing is becoming a dad. And I've seen this, that as you begin to become a father and as you invest in the next generation, God often heals you of the father wounds that you have. And so what we see here is a love of a father for his son, and this is gonna be incredibly important because, because that's what makes this sacrifice so difficult. And God says, I want you to sacrifice his son. Now, why is that? Because God wants to be seen as first in his life, and God wants to be trusted for the future, right? It's like, well, you know, how do you know you're trusting God for the future? Like, well, why, you think of this question, like, why does it have to be Isaac? Well, because Isaac represented all of the future promises that, that Abraham was believing in. And so God's saying, are you going to, are you ultimately, this is a helpful question to ask, are you ultimately trusting in me, God, or are you trusting in Isaac? It's like, well, you don't know till you have to sacrifice Isaac. I mean, it's like, well, are you trusting in the stock market or God? It's like, well, to be honest, you have no idea and I have no idea when the stock market's going well. If that's it, God, right? That's what we say, right? When it's God, when the stock market's going well, um, we're trusting in the Lord. Uh, but you don't know until the stock market goes down, are you, who you're trusting in, right? It's like, well, are you trusting you know, in God or in this relationship? Well, you don't know until you might break up and it might not work out. And then what's, you know, are you trusting in God or your career? Well, you don't know until Wake Baptist Hospital starts delivering babies and you're not sure how it's gonna shake up the whole hospital system. And then you go, I, well, I don't know. I mean, I'd like, I mean I, you know, it's, it doesn't mean you don't do things. It's just, it doesn't mean you don't pray about it. It doesn't mean you don't make decisions, but it's like, where is your ultimate trust in? And he's having to make these decisions. And so I want you to see what happens next. Verse three, so Abraham rose early and some people go, well, he had great faith. It's like, well, maybe, or maybe he couldn't sleep. That's also what people think. You know, it's like, well, it's early in the morning. Let's just get up and go, right? And, and often, by the, and this is helpful to know too, the, the most time wasted is the, is the time getting started. That would be true in starting a business. That'd be true in obeying God. Often the most time wasted in people's life is the time get, uh, getting started. He obeys immediately, right? And he, he doesn't obey because he feels like it, right? It, there, there's something deep. Faith is not what you feel. Faith is primarily what you do because of what you believe. And here's what it says. Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took his two young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering. And he arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. Verse four. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So he's, this is the idea that you have to count the cost, right? You have to really look at it. It's like, it's easy to make a decision one time, but to stare at it, to think through the consequences and to still move forward, this is what we're seeing him do. Verse five, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy. And by the way, uh, commentators think that Isaac is somewhere between 13 and 20 years old. And that's gonna be really, really important. Why is that important? Because what you're gonna see is the father and the son, and tell me if this doesn't sound familiar, the father and the son will walk up the hill together to obey God. And the son is going to willingly lay his life down. How do I know that? Because if you're a teenager or up to 20 years old, you can take your 115-year-old dad, okay? He's not going to make you do anything you don't want to do. So we, we're going to end up seeing the willingness of the son. We're going to actually see the faith and the obedience of the son, not just of the father. Often Isaac is not talked enough about, talked about enough in here. But it says this, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Most people see the first reference to the resurrection here. So, I mean, it's, not, it's in seed form. It's not sophisticated. It's not, I'm not saying this is a whole theology of the resurrection of the body, but we know from Hebrews 11, which is a New Testament passage, 
that Abraham had some type of belief somehow that God would raise up Isaac from the dead if he had to sacrifice him. We get that kind of commentary in the book of Hebrews. And so he comes back, verse six, and Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse eight, one of the keys, I think, to understanding this whole passage. Abraham said, God will provide. He'll say that again at the end. But, but provide literally, technically, in the Hebrew, it means we'll see to it. It's even more strong and emphatic than just provide. God will make sure that it happens. That's what he's saying. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And then we see them go together. Look, verse six. So they both went, or verse eight, I'm sorry. So they went both of them together. And then verse nine. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And for the third time, Abraham says this phrase. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. We get the ultimate motivation. It's like, well, how, how, how can you decide to do something like this? It's a, it's a deep fear of the Lord, right? And, and it's good to know this. There are only three primary motivations God gives us in scripture. The fear of God, the love of God, and the rewards of God. And if you're gonna live the Christian life fully, you're, you're, gonna, you're gonna need all three of those in your arsenal at all times, right? It's like, well, how do you, you know, stay married? It's like, well, you fear God. <laughs> That's part of it, right? You, you fear God, you, you believe what he said, it's like, well, what else? You look to the reward. You realize, well, marriage is also an achievement. And God will reward. And God is faithful. And then also you look to the love of God. Yes, God loved me this way. God was sacrificial. You're going to need all three of those motivations. The, the thing is, often churches just talk about one, right? So if you're in the independent, independent fundamentalist Baptist churches, they tend to talk just the fear of God. It's wrath, it's scary, it's hell, it's sin, it's fear. If you're just in the liberal theological churches, it's just love. Everybody's okay, love. And if you're just in the prosperity, uh, charismatic churches, it's the rewards, the rewards, the rewards. We actually need a biblical idea of all three of these. And so we see that, that he's motivated by the fear of God. But then I want you to see, this is really where the heart of Christianity happens. Look at verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram. Not a lamb, but a ram. So we're going to still have to look for the lamb, but the ram has been shown up. It says this, caught in a thicket by his horns. Now, that's an interesting detail. Why by his horns? So that it would be unblemished. It would be perfect so that it could be sacrificed. Caught in the thicket by his thorns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, that phrase, instead of, is one of the most important phrases in Scripture. In fact, we've got a missionary family that we know from our church, and they've been on the mission field for several years, and they came back, and they were over our house for dinner. And if you don't know this, by the way, this, is, this will help you pray for missionaries. What missionaries do for the first five years at least when they're on the mission field, the primary thing they do is learn language. 
A lot of times a mission organization will actually incentivize you to learn language. Like you can't have a car until you learn language. Which sounds mean, but actually they realize if you don't learn this language, you're going to be no use to yourself, your family, or the people around you. So they'll put a lot of pressure on people to learn language. Well, anyway, this couple was over here, and we were talking about how difficult the language is, and learning to write it, and learning to read it, and learning to talk it, and learning to, you know. Anyway, we're talking about all this, and they said, you know the most helpful word we learned this year was instead of. They said that was such an important word for us to learn because we could not fully explain the gospel without that word. Because at the heart of Christianity is that Jesus Christ died instead of you. That Jesus Christ lived the life instead of you because you couldn't. It's, it's, it's the, this is so important. If you're new or just maybe if you've been in church but you haven't understood this. The, the heart of Christianity is that Jesus Christ is not just our example. He's our substitute. So think about it this way. This is really interesting. The, the definition of sin is when I substitute myself for God, or you do. That's the definition of sin. Like, if you want to go to the, like, you know, we like to get to the bottom of things here. Like, what's the bottom of sin? You substituting yourself and trying to be God. Yeah, yeah, I know the Bible says, but, well, that's you trying to be God. Well, there won't be any consequences for this. Well, that's you trying to be God. Uh, well, I'll lie about it. Well, that's you trying to create another reality. That's you trying to be God. So what, what you do, and this will actually help when you confess your sin to the Lord to, 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 to realize it's more deep, you actually are trying to be God when you sin. You're trying to be in control. You're trying to make your own rules. Now, that's the definition of sin. Guess what the, this is why I love the Bible. Guess what the definition of salvation is? God substituting himself for us. That's the definition. It's like, well, what is salvation? Well, God substitutes himself for us. He lives a life that we cannot live. That's substitution. If you ever wonder, why did Jesus have to be 33 years old? Because you failed at every element of your life, and so have I, and he had to, he had to be, be uh, obedient to that. As an infant, as a baby, as an adolescent, as a teenager, as a young man, and as a man. He had to obey in every area. He had to be our substitute. And then he had to substitute himself and die on the cross in our place. And so this phrase, instead of, is so key. It's like somebody had to be sacrificed, thank God for the ram, or even more, thank God for the lamb of God. And so I want, I want to show you this. And then it ends, look at verse 14. This is how the whole story ends. <clears throat> so Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. So it's like, he doesn't say the Lord did provide. He did, but he says the Lord will provide. And then look at this. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. In other words, it's saying that there's going to be a future provision based on and connected to this story. Well, it's like, well, why do we talk about this for Christmas of all things? Well, let's talk about the connections between this story and the story of Christ, the story of Isaac and the story of Jesus. Both were sons of promise, right? Both were sons of promise. Both, both Isaac and Jesus, we were told, uh, they will be born and there, there will be all of these promises for the good of people connected to them. Isaac was promised for 25 years. Jesus was promised for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, not only that, both were miraculously born, right? Isaac was born to old, old, old man and old woman. Jesus was born by a virgin. Not only that, both were deeply loved by their fathers. They were both only sons loved by the father. That's not a coincidence. It's like, well, think about this. God has always been a father. It's like a deep thought. It's like before he was a creator, before he was a judge, before he was a lawgiver, 
He has always been a father because he and Jesus Christ have always existed and always been in relationship. And what makes Christianity so startling is that God would send the son whom he loves to be the sacrifice. It's like, well, not only that, how about this? How about they both rode in on donkeys, accompanied by two men? Jesus had the two thieves next to him. They have two men there. How about this? They both carried wood on their back for the sacrifice up a mountain. It's like, what? What, you know? I mean, think about this. It's like, well, what, okay, Isaac carries the wood. It's mentioned five times. It's not a mute point. It, it, he carries wood on his back that he will be sacrificed up a mountain. Jesus Christ carries the cross, the vertical altar of sacrifice under which he will be sacrificed on, up a hill. Guess what? Mount Moriah is part of a mountain range. Guess what mountain is the pinnacle of that? Calvary. It's the same mountain area. Not only that, as he's walking up the hill, the father and the son are both obediently doing it. Jesus Christ says, no one takes my life. I lay it down willingly, just like Isaac had laid down his life willingly. How about this? Both ask their dad questions. Isaac says, hey, dad, where's the sacrifice? Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer is because all of the wrath of God has to be poured out on you because you are the substitute. And then how about this? How long was the journey? It was a three-day journey, right, for Abraham and Isaac? That means when Abraham left, in his mind, Isaac was dead for three days. Metaphorically speaking. And it was three days also that Jesus Christ was dead from when he was raised. Now, how about this? If you know the story of Isaac, what's the next thing that happens in the life of Isaac after this uh, metaphorical death and resurrection? What's the next thing that happens? He gets a wife. So what's the next thing that happens after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? He gets a wife, the church. See the connections. There are so many of these connections. There's only one difference. And I'll tell you what the difference is. That God had to go through with the sacrifice. That there was nobody else. There was no other ram. There was no other lamb. There was no other person, right? It had to be somebody that fully represented God and fully represented humanity. When, when, we, when we look at that, and when we, when, we, when we look at the story of Abraham, we see, man, how much does man love God? When we look at the story of Abraham sacrificing his son. When we look at God sacrificing his son, we're asked even a more profound, uniquely Christian question. Wow, how much does God love mankind? that he would be willing to give his only son, the son whom he loves. And so how do we respond as a church? And how do you respond heading into 2020? You have to say the same thing from the deepest part of you that Abraham did, which is here I am. There's two here I am's. There's the here I am of salvation. It's like, Lord, well, I get it, right? And what you get is, here's what it means to become a Christian. Somehow what Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago counted for you. That's what it means. It's like somehow, I don't understand it all. But somehow, Jesus Christ died instead of me. Jesus Christ died for me. And when you believe that, that counts for you. And so that's, some of you, you need to receive Christ and head into 2020 as a brand new person. For all of us, we need to do the here I am of sacrifice. And there's no better time than 2020. I believe the new year is a great time to repent. And let's start. What do you need to sacrifice? What do we, we're we're going to ask that question as a church. You should be asking as a family and individually, what can I sacrifice to show that God is first and I'm trusting him with my future? Let's pray. Lord, I come to you right now. We come to you right now in Jesus' name. And we thank you that Jesus Christ died instead of us, that he bore the wrath of God instead of us, that he faced temptation perfectly in the wilderness instead of us, Lord, that's our great hope. That's what we sing about. That's what we are so grateful for. 
Lord, let us not forget the miracle of Christmas is that a father who loved his son so much sent him to die for sinners like us. We never want to stop being amazed at that. We ask this all in your name. Amen.